They must be destroyed on sight. Okay, uh, welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Lee Russell, joined by my friend and co-host, Daniel Harper. Say hello, Daniel. Hey, how's it going? It's been a long time since I've talked to you. Yeah, fucking months now, I believe. Um, (laughs) We just finished recording the last episode. Yeah, we're trying to bang off three here in in one night. Uh, That that could be taken uh, many different ways. Okay, we're going to be doing uh, a movie Daniel picked uh, this time around. It's going to be Dark City from 1998, directed by Alex Proyas, who uh, is pro- probably also uh, best known for The Crow in 1994. Uh, it's also written by him, the story and the screenplay, with additional writing by Lim Dobbs, who um, actually wrote one of my favorite uh, films, uh, Steven Soderbergh's The Limey. And also David S. Goyer, who is basically a big shot producer, director, writer, everything now, when it has something to do with a comic book uh, property. Um, it stars uh, Rufus Silwell as John Murdoch, William Hurt uh, as Inspector Frank Bumstead, Kiefer Sutherland as Dr. Daniel P. Sherber, uh, Jennifer Connolly, the lovely Jennifer Connolly, as Emma Murdoch, and... Uh, I will take it right over to you, Daniel, if you'd like to give a little synopsis of the film. Sure, not at all. Um, so basically, this is the good version of The Matrix, um, <laughs> with with uh, significantly less kung fu and significantly more German expressionism. Yeah. Um, so uh, basically, this uh, takes place in this kind of uh, um, fragmented uh, world uh, we we don't really get it. It's a very slow burn as to how this how we kind of learn uh, what happened in this uh, world. Um, but you kind of gradually come to learn that this is a uh, world in which uh, an alien species has is experimenting on human beings, uh, trying to find the source of humanity or the the you know what what really makes us tick. Yeah. And in doing so, they are implanting memories in people and uh, changing the reality nightly at midnight. Um, and, you know, they, they each have the ability to, uh, what they call, tune uh, the universe around them. Um, and to, uh, essentially, there's this big clockwork mechanism that makes uh, the buildings change. So you can take a little tiny flat and you can turn it into this yeah. giant mansion. And um, some really effective uh, special effect sequences for 1998, which... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of which have aged well and some have not. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, a great film, one of uh, one of my uh, favorite films of this kind of time period. Um, and uh, Roger Ebert uh, named this his best, his favorite film in 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, recorded an excellent dra- uh, commentary track on the DVD. Yeah. Um, which I would, I, I just want to make sure that people know that exists because it's amazing. Yeah, um, and you so. should get, you should get the director's cut DVD, which is 111 minutes. Um, it omits some things and add, adds in some new stuff, and it takes away this 
ridiculous monologue at the beginning of the film that gives away the entire plot before you even get into the film. <laughs> now, um, I actually have not seen the director's cut. Uh, when I uh, watched this, um, I, uh, I, you know, I own the director's cut mm -hmm. um, because my wife owns the director's cut, and I just never have sat down to watch it, um, despite the fact that I really love the film. Yeah. Uh, when I saw this again, the uh, local, I have an Alamo Draft House in town. Yeah. Uh, like which is, uh, yeah, no, it's it's a. Uh, <laughs> so I got to see this on the big screen uh, for the first time, yeah. and uh, that's actually what uh, it. My wife and I, our second wedding anniversary was like two days after this aired at the Alamo, and so we did the t 10 p.m. show and showing the, you know, once time they're going to show it, uh, we got to see Dark City on the big screen, and it was pretty awesome. Very cool. Um, so my wife is uh, cooler than yours, most likely. Let's just, uh, let's just uh, <laughs> you know, go for that, you know. Because I said, hey, Dark City is playing the weekend before our anniversary, and she says, why haven't you already bought the tickets? <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, so um, yeah, I, I love this film. Uh, one of the one of the great films of its uh, of its year, mm -hmm. certainly. And the um, you know, I think Alex Proyas's best film. Um, yeah, I would argue he hasn't really done anything um, since. Honestly, he hasn't he hasn't done a lot. He did a movie called Garage Days a few years later, and I don't think he's really done anything since then. Um, unfortunately, um, I I really love this film. Um, I love how it blends together several genres and makes them all work effectively. Uh, it starts out like a classic film noir. Almost makes me wish this movie was filmed in black and white. I was thinking that just as I was, when I was re-watching it, I was like, man, I, I, would, I, I want to put in the DVD and then just turn all the colors down. Yeah, because he, I mean, he, he, the, the main character, Rufus Sowell, he wakes up with amnesia in a bathtub in a motel. Um, he doesn't know how he got there, he doesn't know who he is, uh, he's getting these weird flashes in his mind of half-remembered th thoughts and feelings. He comes out of his bathroom into the hotel room and he finds a dead hooker ceremonially murdered by with a dagger, and he finds himself on the run from these aliens who, called the Strangers, who uh, wear all black, and they look like uh, the Nosferatu vampire, essentially. Yeah, no, um, they do, very much. Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of the movies that this movie draws inspiration from, I mean, you mentioned uh, the expressionism, German expressionism feel to it. You've got uh, a big, big uh, sort of connection to, like, Metropolis, um, Nosferatu, like I said. Uh, also feels a lot like Fritz Lang's M, um, but it also... Yeah, 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 M is definitely on that list, yeah. uh, for sure also feels a lot like um, Blade Runner to me. When you look at the cities, like the chases on the rooftops and things like that, it, and, it, it, and also it feels like the best possible version of Gotham City from the 90s Batman films. Like, Yeah, no, it definitely it borrows. What's funny is like it feels a lot like Blade Runner or the, the Tim Burton Batman films, mm -hmm. um, partly because those... We're also drawing from that same yeah. German expressionist, you know, uh, mentality in the in the film noir. Um, I'm reminded in some like some of the visuals remind me of um, Orson Welles' The Trial. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, with the uh, you know the kind of uh, the, the room that's got all the uh, the drawings, all the, all the spirals mm -hmm. and everything. Um, 
another movie made in 98 was uh, Pi, Darren Aronofsky's first yeah, film. Yeah. And it kind of has a, a similar um, aesthetic, although a, a much bigger budget, obviously, um, but yeah. a similar aesthetic um, there. Um, I, you know, and really, uh, I think that this is a film that... Um, it's easy to get lost in the visuals, and it's easy to get lost in the um, and to think it's all surface, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think is true at all. I think this is a uh, a film. I mean, the first thing you're going to talk about is is the visual style yeah. because it is such a distinctive visual style. Um, you talk about Blade Runner. This doesn't look like Blade Runner. This looks like something that's drawing from the same influences as Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and I actually uh, when I saw this at the Alamo, the Alamo shows uh, uh, before all of their special screenings, or really all their screenings, they do uh, these little like thirty-minute. Um, instead of showing commercials, they'll they've pulled a bunch of footage from different things. And they'll kind of. And they actually showed some German expressionist films before oh, yeah. this, you know, some like old silent films from the from the twenties. Cool. Um, and they showed the Blade Runner trailer, yeah. <laughs> among uh, lots of other things. So um, the Alamo Draft House is a great place to go see movies. Um, just to uh, just in case if there's an Alamo Draft House, if you're listening to this podcast and there's an Alamo Draft House near you, you should be going to it. That's all I'm saying. Um, um, and I don't even get paid. I'm going to get paid by the Alamo. So. Yeah, my only other question is, what's the beer selection like at the Alamo Draft House? It's going to vary by location, but uh, they have 30 taps, and they are mostly local. Um, ah, so Michigan. Um, <laughs> lots of lots of local Michigan stuff. Um, I, I've been to one of the ones in Austin, and they had a bunch of uh, like Austin-based you know, real ale and, and that sort of stuff. So. Cool. Um, but yeah, no, the local one, they've almost always got, I mean, obviously Bell's is big, you know, they've got some Bell's, they've got some shorts, they've got a lot of the little local places that nobody's heard of unless you live here, you know, um, so they've got some tapestry, they've got all kinds of stuff, but, you know, this isn't a beer podcast, but, um, they do have a very nice beer selection, um, and they serve food and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, I'm assuming that if you're listening to this podcast, you don't need me to tell you what the Alamo Draft House is, but, uh, it's a, uh, you know, just just Google it. If you don't know, you know, I, I've been reading about the Alamo Draft House since this movie was new because I was reading Any Cool News since about 1998. Mm-hmm. And uh, Harry Knowles, yeah. back when Harry Knowles was, like, really cool and, you know, <laughs> and I, yeah, no, no complaints. I'm not trying to, to bring that up, but, uh, you know, yeah, uh, definitely uh, sold me on this place, uh, like, 15 years before I actually got to go to one. Um, yeah. So uh, awesome times. Anyway, um, I I see a lot of old movies at the Alamo now. That's cool. Um, which is uh, I saw the apartment. Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Oh yeah. With a beer in front of me on the big screen. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, now that I've uh, I've done the movie equivalent of Ryan Rashan's uh, beer conversation, right? Because he talks about all the great beer he can get. Yeah. And I'm like, oh yeah, I saw The Apartment on the big screen. You know, uh, wasn't that great? Um, I feel bad about that. That's all right. But anyway, Dark City, yeah. great movie. Great um, movie. Check yeah. it out. Um, we, I was talking about how the visual style is uh, such a compelling thing to talk about in this film, mm-hmm. and I definitely want to keep talking about that. But I definitely don't want to give the story um, short shrift yeah. because I think the story is really effective. It is kind of this um, simultaneously. There is the police procedural element that comes mm-hmm. through from William Hurt's character. Um, you've got the, uh, the female lead, Jennifer Connelly, well, pretty much virtually the only female character in the film, yeah, Melissa, unfortunately. I think Melissa George is basically the only other female. She played one yeah, of the horror I mean, victims. 
I mean, you, you basically have two speaking female parts in this film yeah. who have more than about two lines. Um, but Jennifer Connelly's really giving it her all here. Um, she is, um, at times, you know, she is bewildered. She is John Murdoch's wife. Mm -hmm. um, and she is, uh, she doesn't know how to feel about her husband's activities. She doesn't, she's cooperating with the police, but she doesn't know if she should. And um, not a lot on the page there, I think, but a lot, like, Connelly really, um, sells that role in a limited amount of screen time yeah. and um you know uh between this and requiem for a dream i really wish she was doing more acting yeah um, me too yeah um it's one of those i'm not sure what happened to her but she was amazing um, yeah in this um Kiefer sutherland we haven't even talked about Kiefer sutherland yeah, he's so he's doing he's this. doing his best uh joseph mongole you know mengele yeah. you know uh who's uh definitely you know doing that uh heavy breathing uh, acting uh, very well. Yeah. I don't know what to say to you, John. To just John. listen. Yeah. Um, the the William Shatner mode of uh, performance, but uh, <laughs> very very effective here. I uh, I really like his performance. Yeah. Um, and uh, arguably, when you get to the end, he's really the hero of the film. Uh, yes. Um, um, I think I think very much so. Um, and when uh, and, and when you start, it's it's kind of dubious as to what he is because if you you open this movie thinking it's a noir film, and he's the first guy to talk to John Murdoch. He phone calls him in, in his hotel room saying, you got to get out of there real quick. Usually that's sort of the character in a typical noir who's really not there to help the main character. He's really there to entrap right. him in something else or use him. And technically he sort of is in a way, because he is working with the strangers um, to a certain extent, but... He uh, wants to get out of this as well. Like he sees something in John Murdoch that he thinks can basically free all the people out of this nightmare trap that they're in constantly, where there's no sunshine, no daytime. It's constantly night, and every, at twelve o'clock, everybody falls asleep and gets new memories implanted in them. So, um, and he's the one doing it for the strangers. Like they, they have right. him doing all the dirty work. So. Um, yeah, re really great character, and obviously a very tortured character. You can see from his scars that he was physically tortured and and made to capitulate with the strangers. Um, and he 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 also has lost all his memories. He 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 has retained only his technical skills as yeah. a scientist. Um, he, they make that clear at, at a certain point in the film yeah. um, that that he is as lost as any of them are. Yeah. Um, which you know you kind of you, you really get this feeling like what are these guys going to do? You know, at the end of the film, when, you know, spoiler alert, these strangers are, are defeated and, you know, Murdoch brings the sun back, what what does life now look like? Yeah. Um, a, a very ambiguous ending, I think, um, for yeah. the film. I mean, you know, um, gorgeous, obviously, um, with the, the first hint of light for, for two hours sitting and watching it. And <laughs> uh, it's this gorgeous shot, and, you know, uh, Jennifer Connelly and uh, Rufus Sewell have their uh, great little moment yeah. there, and, uh, you know, hauntingly beautiful almost. Um, yeah, uh, like there's a really interesting theme in this one. I mean, on the surface, yes, it's just, it's just a very pretty movie. There's a lot of weird noir things going on. There's sci-fi action. There's telekinetic battles and things of that nature. But <laughs> But when it gets down to it, it's really about what makes us people, what really defines who we are as a person is it our thoughts and memories or is there something deeper inside of us because 
essentially the main characters in this are becoming aware that something's definitely wrong. I mean, even though they've been re had memories replanted in them probably dozens of times, if not hundreds. Um, well, there's no there's no sense of like how long this has been going mm -hmm. on. I mean, this could have been they could have been the strangers could have been manipulating people and like people giving birth to new generations for millions of years, hypothetically. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, you know, because Kiefer Sutherland wouldn't live that long, but yeah. you know, you, you get the idea. Like this, this could be a very long term thing. It's, it's completely isolated from the rest of the world, um, yeah. but, from any sense of time. But there's like there's this obvious sort of spark in some of these characters, like uh, John Murdoch. He's basically a genetic anom anomaly in this, where mm -hmm. he resists the treatment and wakes up with only half the memories implanted in him. Um, uh, Jennifer Connelly, she seems to have some sort of connection with John outside of the memories implanted in her. Um, the detective, played by William Hurt, Inspector Bumstead, um, like Ebert says, not exactly a great cop because he's just had those memories implanted in him like the, the day <laughs> right. before or whatever, right? But he definitely sees there's something weird just just on intuition alone like he's looking at these characters and sees hey, you know what this guy seems like he's just a raving lunatic but there really is something weird going on here and so i think the movie is trying to explore um even if we had our you know our lives stripped away from us would our innate personalities eventually come through and try to you know, rebuild our lives to some extent, you know, to try to take well, back. And, and the film has a little bit of fun with that, um, too, in the sense that the uh, the hotel desk clerk mm. shows up later as a magazine vendor um, and has, you know, basically the same personality. He's just, they've just moved him from one place yeah. to another. Um, you know, there is the, the kind of, you know, the cheesy line at the end where, where the uh, uh, riffraff... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, what's uh, what's the actor's name? I apologize. Um, uh, the uh, uh, one of the strangers takes on the full John oh, Murdoch. Oh yeah, case. Richard O'Brien is Mr. Richard O'Brien. Yeah, uh, is Mr. Hand a very creepy performance? Brilliant, yeah. brilliantly done. Um, he, uh, I guess, survives longer than any other stranger. He uh, blinks into the sunlight, and you know, John Murdoch says, "You were looking in the wrong place," and he gestures to his heart. In this uh, telegraph, you know that's that's. A, but you know, okay, yeah, we're at the end of the movie. You get to we get to to just state the point of the movie here at the very end. Um, but um, you know, kind of a effective moment. Yeah, they they make it they make it very uh very abundantly clear how alien the strangers really are. Like they're they're presented as these like uh sort of like plasmic kind of parasitic creatures that come out of. The, they use the corpses of dead bodies, or corpses of dead bodies, the corpses of humans. <laughs> the corpses of dead bodies. Yeah, that's good. The one. dead bodies themselves create corpses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they, but they use their dead bodies as vessels to walk around in and do their do their thing. They're they're presented as very cold, very hive mind like. Like they really don't have much of a personality outside of their collective uh, consciousness. Almost uh, Richard O'Brien's Mister Hand. He only really gets. A personality because he's injected with the full personality that was supposed to be injected in John Murdoch of the serial killer for that that uh, that phase of the experiment or whatever. So, um, but even then, he can't get what makes us 
human. Like there, there's still there's this weird distance between the two species where they just don't quite get, and that's pretty much their undoing because they're trying to go about it the wrong way, essentially. Right. Um, there's this uh, really creepy moment. Uh, one of my favorite uh, bits of the film where um, you're the first time you see a tuning happen, the first time you see um, the um, city shifting around and, and all these sorts of things, and you uh, kind of hear on a loudspeaker a, a list of items that have been produced to uh, sell the reality of this. You know, on an assembly line, putting together these knickknacks from mm-hmm. people's lives. And it's clear they have no, like, they know how to construct it, but they don't know what it means. Yeah. And it's such a uh, telling moment in terms of, I mean, one of the things that really, that, that really kind of turns me on these days in terms of movies and TV shows and, and media in general is world building. And um, Dark City is a film that's built on world building. I mean, it mm. builds a, you know, this, this feels like it is not a real world, it's a hyper-real world, but it is a world that is uh, compelling and fully realized. You know, yeah. there, are no, uh, there are no details out of place. There are no details that, that don't make sense. Yeah. Um, th- this feels very organic, and it, you know, it is built brick by brick, almost literally. Um, and I, I love that about this film. Yeah, um, I like how uh, obviously in Inception sort of swiped from from Dark City. <laughs> like it's so f- very obvious in those scenes with the 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 entire city just bending over. You know, like right. Well, and and you think about what uh, Inception is thirteen years later or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so you know, you you think about like how far the t- technology had come in that 13 years yeah. because you look at the, the, the scenes in Inception which are, you know, obviously more technically accomplished in terms of, you know, just watching it. But you think about, like, well, in 1998, this is only five years after Jurassic Park, you yeah. know? Um, when CGI was in its infancy and, they're, they're, you know, some of the stuff that they're doing there is are practical effects. There yeah. are, you know, there are, there are some practical stuff. Well, yeah, the Matrix. Um, there's some model work. There, yeah, the there's Matrix all kinds of stuff. Reused the Matrix reused some of Oh, was that, is that true, really? Yeah, they reused some of wow. the uh, rooftop sets, apparently. So, I, I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> Trinity kicked ass on the same uh, rooftop that uh, Rufus Sewell was uh, yeah. <laughs> trying to get to Shell Beach. Yeah. Um... I don't know. Do you have any criticisms to this film? I feel like I mean we're we're very positive about it, and I I don't have a problem if we are just completely positive. But um... yeah, on, honestly, I don't. I can't really say I do because there's not really a weak moment personally for me in the film. I find, I mean, part part of it is just the fan service to movie nerds like myself um, that I just. I, I, I go into the movie, I'm like, oh my god, there's M, there's Metropolis, there's Nosferatu, there's all these movies I love, and not only are they, he, he's, he's drawing from those, he's not doing it in just some cute way, oh, look what movies I saw, like, he's really implementing it into that world-building thing you were talking about, and I, I, I found basically everything was, not only did it look gorgeous, I thought all the actors did an impressive really great job especially uh for me honestly william hurt and keith sutherland were the standouts for me i don't disagree with you and and, uh, i mean i think everything was i think everything was as good as it 
really possibly could be. I mean, even the movie doesn't run necessarily that long, so it doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, yeah, I've got... I honestly, I, I'd, I'd have to say it's pretty much a perfect film in a lot of ways, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Oh yeah, no, I I, uh, I don't disagree. I uh, I really do uh, love this film. Um, it's such a tone poem. It's such a such a mood. Uh, it's, it's so built on that on that reality. Um, you know, it's it's a another slow burn film. We tend to be talking about slow burn films lately. Um, yeah. It doesn't uh, give itself away early on. You know, um, uh, performances are great. Uh, the script is great. Um, it's it's effective. I uh, yeah no, I, I really don't have don't have like some deep criticism. Um, I do wish there were more female, more women in the in the film. Yeah, yeah. That'd be um, nice. I I think that's uh, you know, something that maybe is a little more clear to us today in in twenty fourteen than maybe in nineteen ninety eight. Um, you know, but uh, I don't think that it hurts the film too much. But I I, I would I, I do think that's one of the things that I would. Um, but, you know, if you're saying it's aping the, uh, the old noir films and the German expressionist films, you know, then those were all filled with a bunch of white dudes too, so. Yeah, you, <laughs> you know? usually just had, you usually just had the two female characters. You had the, the sweet, beautiful lounge singer, and then maybe you had the hooker as well. Maybe the, right. the, the pretty much the two archetypes that you'd have. So I, I don't, I don't necessarily fault the film for not having a more broader cast. And honestly, if you, I think. If they had too many more characters in it anyway, it would probably hurt the film overall. Right. No. Um. Uh, it it is a even though it is you know we talk about how it's built it's building a world here you know it it really only has a handful of of really characters mm -hmm. of, of speaking roles, um, who are delved into very deeply. I mean, you get a really good sense of who William Hurt's character is and who Kiefer Sutherland's character is and, uh, you know, the the other, um, John Murdoch and uh, Jennifer Connelly, of course. Um, one thing I did want to talk about is just the, the ending, um, mm -hmm. if you don't mind taking a couple of minutes. No. Um, and, uh, I really love the ending of this film, the, uh, the, the kind of uh, leading up to the uh, final battle, I mean, you basically what what happens is the the protagonists, uh, William Hurt, Rufus Sewell, and Kiefer Sutherland, find the edge of the world. Yeah. Um, they break through. They're, they've been searching for Shell Beach this whole time, which is something that only exists in their deep memories. And you see, the, it's it's a place where there is sun and there is a beach, and you know nobody knows how to get there. And finally, they find this place, and it's a a brick wall. Mm -hmm. You break through the brick wall, and suddenly it leaches into space. Yeah. Um, and there is some force field around this giant city that's just floating nowhere. Um, really powerful moment. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we are not on Earth here. We are not in some enclosed area. We are not, like, this is, this is completely isolated from anything else. The strangers capture John. They they essentially uh, um, they Mr. Hand yeah. Mr. Hand threatens threatens Jennifer Connelly's yeah. life um, to uh, get John to to give himself up. You find out that then he he wakes up on a table. He's about to be his his he's they're about to just destroy everything. Mm -hmm. um, they have won. They have defeated. You know our heroes are defeated, 
And Kiefer Sutherland saves the day by essentially yeah. implanting a lifetime worth of memories of teaching John Murdoch how to use his powers. And the Matrix obviously um, stole that. Like, because oh, yeah. you download martial arts into your mind and you have suddenly your Kung Fu master. Like, obviously exactly I mean, the same thing. Th- this this is this is an old science fiction idea. I mean, yeah. this is this is something that um, goes back to at least the '40s in in written science fiction that I know of. Um, but it's such a like. Uh, I remember the first time I saw this. I mean, I was I was moved honestly um, by how uh, powerful those those images are when uh, it's you know oh suddenly we have ripped victory from the jaws of defeat. Yeah. You know, you thought we had lost and. A classic film noir would have just okay, and then John Murdoch dies on the table. Like that would yeah. be the that's the Jet Black, you know, Terry Gilliam's Brazil ending yeah. for this film. Um, but it, you know, we do get the happy ending, and I'm glad we get it because I think you know you sit through an hour and forty five minutes of the of the dark, you you get your five minutes of light at the end, and it's uh, it's very very moving. Again, I yeah. uh, I really love the ending of this film. I think it's uh, it's. When I think about Dark City, I think about the imagery, but I think about that last ten minutes or so. Like that's that's kind of the the first thing I think of almost. Um, yeah, it's it's really nice. I, um, and I and I like how it's sort of open ended into in a way where, so what what is John Murdoch going to do now? Is because he, he is essentially uh, usurped the uh, strangers. He is now able to do what they did in on even a grander scale all by himself um, so essentially he is now the guy who can reshape this entire world and it looks like he's going to reshape it into the actual memories that he has implanted in himself you know he's gonna make the world reflect uh, the memories that were given to him earlier um, and and I like that because it's it, it's left a little ambiguous as to what will become of this guy. Will he be, will will he be tainted by that? Because you can sort of argue that the strangers, perhaps they're not necessarily evil characters. They're just uh, driven beyond you know all all good decency and sense in some sort of desperate attempt for survival in their experiments. Um, and so it makes me wonder what. It's going to become John Murdoch, uh, and and I, I like that sort of open endedness. It's a happy ending, but at the same time, it's not a happy ending that ties everything together. So right, right. I mean, it's definitely ambiguous, and uh, you know, you won't hear me say this often, but I think this is a film that you might actually want to see a sequel to, like like a continuation of what happens twenty years later. Mm. You know, what is what is this culture like? You know, what what have these people built? You know what is the world of this film, and I think that um, because obviously the the director was not concerned with giving us uh, you know nuts and bolts of exactly where they are, and you know, I, and the film is better for it. You know yeah. that that we're not oh, and then it turned out we were forty three light years from Earth, and it was you know like that sort of thing. It's <laughs> uh, you know you never get that version of events. You know, um, it'd be interesting to be like were there like astronomy observatories. In Dark City, before uh, before you know the end of the world, you yeah. know happens, and John Murdoch takes over, was you know were there scientists, were there people like looking at like the physics doesn't work the way it should, and that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I you know that would be uh, you know again an, an interesting thing that we uh, fun to speculate about. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, 
There's the, I, I want this film to be rediscovered not just by film nerds like us, but I, I want like nerds to discover it. Mm. I want people to uh, kind of find it and have uh, in-depth conversations about it. I want I want dorm room chatter about Dark City. Yeah, I can't. Um, I, and, I also can't believe it was overlooked. I mean, I, I guess it must have just been a little too dense and maybe weird for some people because, I mean. It's a fantastic film. I mean, I think Ebert was correct in saying it was the best film of 1998. I mean, and this was up against stuff like American History X, Saving Private Ryan, um, my personal, one of my personal favorite movies, The Big Lebowski, uh, Fear and Loathing. That was 97, wasn't it? No, uh, Big Lebowski was 98 as well. Okay. Uh, um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, Happiness, I think one you recommended to me that I haven't watched yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I mean, this was a great year for films, and Ebert singled singled it out as his best. Yeah, no, yeah, no. And then uh, you will you will find no almost no bigger fan of Roger Ebert than myself. Uh, in in terms of talking about film and talking about stories and and how we talk about these things, um, you know, forget Siskel and Ebert. Let's let's talk about like. Ebert's writing as a, mm. as a being over, you know, for from 67 to 2013, you know, he, he wrote for, for 40 something years about uh, stories. And uh, this was one of his all time favorite films. Yeah. So, uh, what, what else, what else needs to be said? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think we're, I think we're both in agreement that this is, fucking fantastic i mean yeah uh, if you haven't seen dark city you should really give it a shot um although now we've kind of given away the entire uh, plot of the thing but, uh, uh yeah but i i don't think it's any less enjoyable honestly i think it's yeah no there, there's a lot in this film we didn't talk about too um and there's there's a lot going on you get a lot of the great imagery i mean just let it wash over you um, it, it's brilliant brand stuff. I mean, uh, I would highly, highly recommend this. I mean, uh, going in watching it, even though I've watched it several times, the, this latest time I watched it for the podcast, it, it still sucked me in like it did the first time I watched it. I mean, I still got really drawn in and just focused on it and didn't want to do anything else but watch the film. It was that good. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. So, all right. Uh, Wrapping up. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, plug your shit, Daniel. Plug by shit. Oh, oh, my podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, you can uh, find me if you want to find me on Twitter. You can find me at Daniel E Harper. Um, that's probably a good way to get a hold of me. Um, if you want to listen to me talk about storytelling and uh, feminism and other things, uh, sexual dysfunction in uh, science fiction television shows, you can uh, listen to my Doctor Who podcast, which I do with my wife. And Lee, I think, has listened to almost every episode of that. So I have listened to every episode. Excellent podcast. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so you can find that at oispaceman. That's oispaceman.libsyn.com. Or you can search for oispaceman at Doctor Who Love Story. We're on Facebook and uh, we're on iTunes. And I'm trying to get us on the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance, but uh, nobody uh, seems to want to update that these days. So um, I'm not on that yet, but I've been trying. Is Moffat but, on that yeah. or what? <laughs> All right. Uh, you can catch me uh, on Twitter, uh, Lee Russell, Hogley Reviews at gmail.com if you want to email, hate mail, and send me uh, lewd pictures. Um, and uh, I definitely send Lee lewd pictures yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, very, uh, very beard intensive uh, 
pictures. Um, also, if you if you want to, uh, you're probably uh, again you're probably watching this on listening to this on YouTube, so you can just click my name and see all my beer reviews and whiskey reviews and all that other nonsense. And uh, until then, we're going to go with a song, and this time it is your turn to choose, Daniel. So, what would you like to hear? It is actually one of Jennifer Connelly's songs from the movie, uh, because she does play the lounge singer, mm -hmm. and I have the title of it, um, because I am uh, a bad, bad podcaster tonight. I'll just say, uh, The Night Has a Thousand Eyes. That's nice, the Night Has the a night Thousand has Eyes. And I'll yes. say, Jennifer Connelly actually didn't sing them, it was Anita Kelsey or something like that, but... Uh... I don't care. I, I could look at Jennifer Conley read the phone book, so whatever. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that sitting there right now. But yes, no. Yeah. Jennifer Conley, gorgeous, and uh, the singer was uh, really uh, good. Really good. Yeah. yeah. And it's a great song. So yeah. listen to it right now in your ear holes. Yep. Yeah. See you later, guys. Bye bye. Cheers. <laughs>